Well, good afternoon. My name is Paul Lundgren. I'm the pastor and one of the elders at Gateway Community Church in Middleton. Uh, and it is a real honor to be uh, with you uh, he here again on Good Friday uh, this year. If you were here for the service last year, you might remember that I actually had the privilege of speaking then as well. And so uh, when Mike, here from, from here at High Point, when he asked me if, if I'd be willing to preach again this year, I was, I'll admit, I was pretty flattered. Uh, very rarely, I, I guess I don't think they've ever asked someone to preach two years in a row since we've been doing Good Friday here. And so in that split second after he asked me to, to preach here this year, um, I thought to myself, boy, they must have really liked my sermon last year. It's probably something they've been talking about in the halls of <laughs> High Point Church ever since last year, and, and they said, we've got to invite this guy back again. And so all of this goes through my head in, in just a split second, and I said to Mike, wow, two years in a row, I, I would be happy to come again. To which he said, you preached here last year? <laughs> 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 Thank you. But no take backs. He asked and I said yes. And I'm really glad that uh, Mike forgot. He thought I was two years ago at least since I had. But uh, I'm really glad because it really is, and I mean this, it is a joy and a privilege to be before you today to talk about Christ on the cross. There is no place I would rather be than right here speaking with you and opening God's word with each one of you. Really, it should never cease to amaze us that God has spoken to us through his word in a way that, that we can understand, in a way that we can pass down, in a way that we can translate into all sorts of other languages, and most importantly, in a way that changes us, that transforms us, that is still so relevant to us today that we are changed by it. So let me just say, if you feel today something stirring in your heart, know that that is God at work confirming the truth of his word in your heart and inviting you to turn to him. And I hope you will do that today if you have not already. Now, speaking of God's word, I'm going to take us to what, it might, first, what might at first glance uh, seem like a strange place for a Good Friday uh, service. We're going to turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 21, starting in verse 4. And here we're going to read an account that just perfectly foreshadows. If you think of the Bible as a whole, it's one, one big story. We see early in the story this foreshadowing of Jesus' death, even though it was written over a thousand years before Jesus actually died. And so let's read this together. I'm going to have a different translation than the Bibles in the pews in front of you. Um, and so if you'd like to read on the screen with me, you can do that. Um, but would you all please stand for the reading of God's word? Numbers 21, 4 through 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. 
And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in, this, in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, this passage comes, as we know, well over 1,000 years before Jesus lived and died, but would you show us how this passage clearly points to Christ and to that central moment in human history that we are celebrating today? Lord, I pray that as, you, as we look at your word, that you would transform us through your word. I pray that your word would do your work today in each one of us. And I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all be seated now? Now let's take a, a moment to kind of walk our way through this rather obscure little passage here. Uh, it begins with Israel wandering around the wilderness and grumbling for the umpteenth time that God has not done enough for them. This despite the fact that at this point, we have seen God save them from slavery in Egypt, part the Red Sea for them to cross on dry land. He made food, and he was still at this point making food show up on the ground of the wilderness each morning. Multiple times he made water come from rocks, and on top of this, he defeated numerous stronger armies on Israel's behalf. God has shown himself faithful through this whole time, and yet we see these people complain. In fact, I love how they complain here. They say, there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. <laughs> we have no food, and by the way, the food you gave us stinks. That was in Israel at this point in time. All, ne never content, always grumbling. And of course, that's not just an Israel problem, that's a human problem. But then, of course, they would take that problem one step further. And they would go beyond just grumbling about the food, and they would say, and this isn't the first time either, we were better off in Egypt. Why did you take us out of that paradise in Egypt where we got to make bricks with our own hands? Wasn't that wonderful? Really, what they're saying is, we would have been better without you, God. Why, didn't you just, why don't you just leave us alone? There's a sense in which they actually trusted their captors in Egypt more than the Lord who had saved them. This despite the fact that he had done thing after thing for them, done so many miracles for them, to provide for them. And so all of this was a rejection of God and a rejection of his salvation that we're seeing right here. Now, God is described many times in the Bible as slow to anger. Another word that's used is long-suffering. And certainly that is true, and we could go to a lot of other 
Bible passages, historical accounts that show that. But we do see here, he's not forever suffering. He's long-suffering, but he's not forever suffering, and he gets angry. God has what's called righteous anger. God gets angry, and because he's righteous, it's always righteous anger. And in this case, he uses his righteous anger to send poisonous snakes into the camp, and a bunch of people get bit, and we're told even a bunch of people die. And what we see from here, we could spend a whole, our, all our time just talking about this, but one of the things at least we see here is that following God, God is making it clear that following him is not just a nice thing that we could do if we felt so inclined. If we could just fit him into our lives or something like that. I want to dispel that notion right now because this text does not allow us to think that way. He's not just some nice thing that we can choose. Do we want him or not? God doesn't just say, feel free to follow me or not. It's up to you. No, he demands that we follow him. And as God and creator of the universe, he alone has that right to make that demand because he made us. And we belong to him. He made Israel, and they belong to him. And Israel finally remember this, and they come to their senses, and they go to Moses, and they say, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prays, and God, as he always does when we confess our sins to him, God forgives. But this time he does it in a really weird way, doesn't he? God tells Moses to make an image, a statue essentially, of a poisonous serpent. In other words, what, what God is saying here is, is make an image of the very thing that is poisoning you and put it on a pole high up so that everyone around can see it and so that those who will look at the pole Look at the snake, they'll be healed and will live. Now, one of the reasons I, I thought to talk about this passage today uh, is actually because our Sunday school, uh, Gateway, has just covered this story as they're going through the whole Bible in, in three years. And my nine-year-old, Claire, uh, she asked about this story at the dinner table uh, a little while ago, and she said, Dad, this is really insightful, I thought. She said, Dad, how come... God had them put a snake on the pole. Because aren't snakes, like, bad in the Bible? Didn't they, like, make Adam and Eve sin? So why would God have them look at that? Now, all of you are lucky. When your kids ask really hard questions like that, you get to say, you know, that's a question we should ask our pastor. <laughs> but, of course, I'm her pastor, so what am I going to do? I got I to gotta figure this stuff out. See, the answer I came to is, is that the whole point is that the snake, snakes are bad. Is that the serpent represents something bad. In the Garden of Eden, it was the serpent that had enticed Eve to sin. It was the snake, in a sense, that had spread the poison of sin to mankind. And so through this, this act, God wants you to know sin is a poison and it's killing you. It was this external reminder from the snakes of something internal, a problem we have in our hearts. 
And so as a symbol of this, God sent snakes to poison the people. But then, because he loved the people, he gave them a cure. The way to be healed of the poison was to put that symbol of sin, to put that cursed thing, the serpent, on a pole, that whoever looks upon it will be saved. And you see, all of this was intended to foreshadow what Jesus would do on the cross. And that's not some brilliant connection that I came up with. Jesus himself talks about this. Jesus was talking to the Pharisee Nicodemus a thousand years after this event that we read in Numbers. And here's what he says, John 3, 14 and 15, right before the most famous verse in the Bible, Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so when Jesus says here, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, he is saying that, in a sense, he's going to be like that snake. This is actually a shocking thing that Jesus says, and it's hard for us to grasp even today. So, so hang with me here, but, but that snake represented sin. And now on the cross, Jesus is saying he would represent, and in a sense, he would even become sin. Sin for us. A couple verses that say as much. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Then again, he talks about, about the curse of sin in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, it's all, it's all counterintuitive. But essentially what, what we see here is, is to take our sin, Jesus became our sin. And to take our curse, he became cursed. To defeat our death, he died. He became sin cursed and he died so we could be free of sin, curse, and death. Also that people like you and me, ordinary people from Madison, Wisconsin, and people all the way over on the other side of the globe as well, so that we could one day turn to him and live. Which brings us to the last piece of all of this. If you remember what God had the people of Israel do when they were poisoned, all they had to do was look at the snake. Do you see that? Just look. He didn't make people who were weakened by sin walk over to the snake. He didn't make them climb the pole and, and touch the snake. He didn't put the snake over in, on some far-off mountain for them to climb up the mountain and, and reach the snake and have this big pilgrimage and, and then they would be saved. No, they just had to look. There was no work on their part and they didn't have to heal themselves. God, out of his tremendous love, did everything. It was his work. It was his goodness. It was his grace that did everything. And really, all these poisoned people had to do was just admit that they were poisoned. Admit that they were in trouble and that they needed to be saved and have the faith then to look at that snake for salvation. And that's all Jesus asks us to do as well. 
admit that we're sinners who need to be saved from our sins and turn and look to him. Now, whenever a pastor talks about just looking to Christ, we are somewhat obligated to talk about when uh, perhaps the greatest preacher uh, to live, at least in the Western world, uh, Charles Spurgeon, when he came to Christ. He was a young man uh, who was going through a tough stretch of his life, and he decided to go to, go to church that day. And so he went into church, but, but there was a huge snowstorm, and he was able to get there, but actually the, the regular preacher for that, de- for that church was not there. He couldn't get in through the, the snow, snow. And so there was a small group of people, and, so, and one man, a, a shoemaker or a tailor or something, he went up to the pulpit to preach. And he probably only knew one or two texts total, Spurgeon says. And so he opened up to Isaiah 45, 22, where the text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And then Spurgeon starts to go through what he says. He says, The preacher began thus. He said, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. And a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. On top of that, the text says, look unto me. He says, many of you are looking unto yourselves. But it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ. And then he started speaking from Christ's point of view. He said what Christ would say to each one of us. He said, look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Look unto me, look unto me. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. And listen, what you need to know is that Jesus is saying that to you now. He's saying, look unto me. Don't look anywhere else. There's nowhere else to look. I did all of this. I went to these lengths. I was lifted up on the cross. Why? So that you could just look at me and live. You see, Jesus came to save you from the poison of sin. He took the curse of death on himself on the cross. So look to him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this room, there are people whose hearts you are drawing to yourself right now. I pray that by your grace, they would look at your Son, Jesus Christ that they would look to the one who was cursed 
so we wouldn't be cursed. Who became sin so that our sin would be taken away. Who died so that we would never die. I pray that each one of us would look to you, not look to ourselves, not look to our works, as if we can do anything to erase our sin. We can't. But your son came, satisfied all the requirements so that we could be forgiven. And Lord, as we reflect on that, Lord, whether we we accepted that, whether we looked to you for the first time today or we've done it decades ago, Lord, I pray that now throughout this Good Friday and throughout this Easter season that we would bubble up with joy over what it is you have done in us and what what it is you have done for us. Would we respond to what you've done in worship even as we take communion and sing now? Lord, change us, move us to look to you on the cross, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.